Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Joshua Bloom. Josh is VP of Data and Analytics at GE Digital. And if Josh's name sounds familiar, it's because it should. He was our fifth guest here on the show, and that was back in September of 2016. Josh, welcome back to the show. You're our first repeat guest. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have you on the show, and I encourage folks who who haven't already listened to that show or even haven't listened to it recently to go back and listen to it again. It was Twimmel talk number five, and it's been one of our most popular shows of all time. So you can really, really dig deep into Josh's background by going back and listening through that show. But for now, Josh, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and catch us up on what you've been up to recently? Yeah, so I started off in physics and astrophysics and did a PhD at at Caltech, went to Harvard as a postdoc and then got really interested in robotization. And it was then that I started getting excited about machine learning as I realized that we had some big data problems coming down the pike. And when we needed to do discovery on new images, let's say coming from telescopes, at that point, my colleagues were basically saying I would just hire more grad students to look at the data. So that's how I came upon machine learning a little over 10 years ago. Fast forward a bit, we wound up building up a kind of end-to-end system to do some astronomy projects with data and machine learning. And then with the research group, wound up starting a company called Wise.io based out of Berkeley, California. Over time, we wound up building out a set of products in customer support, integrating with Zendesk and Salesforce to help support agents basically become more efficient and delight their customers even more. Last year, I think around the time that we had our first conversation, Sam, we had some broad interest from a number of, of different companies and GE Digital wound up becoming very interesting and compelling for us. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But we announced our acquisition by GE Digital in November of last year in 2016. Mm. And since then have been working within GE Digital for a much broader GE ecosystem and GE's customers. And we're certainly happy to talk to you about what we've been doing and you know, how we've made the transition from really customer-facing and consumer internet to industrial internet. Great. That's exactly what I want to focus on for this show. And in fact, we can start out by me thanking you and GE for graciously sponsoring our industrial AI, both the research and the podcast. Well, it's, it's our pleasure. And needless to say, it's been fun for me personally and for those around me at WISE within GE Digital to also have you go through the same sort of process as we wind up learning about this, you know, industrial machine learning world. In some sense, we've, I think, lived sort of parallel tracks <laughs> of coming to realize, you know, how important it is, what kind of value there is, and how different it is from the other types of machine learning and AI that's done still in industry, but not in the uh, sort of hardcore machine industrial context. 
So maybe let's start there with the kinds of things you've been learning. You are in, you know, I can't think of a more target rich environment. The way I think you've once explained your role at GE is to kind of AI all the things or at least be a part of that. (laughs) And there are certainly a lot of things there that a lot of industrial things there to be AI'd, if you will. Have we just verbed AI? (laughs) Yeah, I think you get the credit for coining that if that's true. (laughs) How's that been going and and what have you been learning? Yeah, I mean, in in some sense, the practical nature of what it means to do machine learning in production at scale with fault tolerance is the same sort of thing that we took from our previous work and previous product set and applied it to the sorts of problems that GE has in front of it. And I'd say the most practical thing is to say that we shouldn't be AIing all the things, that a lot of things don't need AI. And oftentimes when I give talks internally within GE, one of the big things that I'll challenge people with is this notion that everything needs, you know, machine learning. Or if all we did is just apply TensorFlow to it, then all our problems would be solved. We don't believe that. I think the people that have been working in, in this field for a long time understand that very deeply. And so part of our mission is to help people within GE and, and, and eventually GE's customers to understand what it what what are the workflows, what's the type of data where you know advanced analytics or machine learning or even more broadly AI can be used to affect better business outcomes. And it's kind of with that lens of why are you doing this that we're able to say yes to a bunch of things, but say no to a bunch of other types of projects where you know traditional business rules may just make great sense. Mm-hmm. Or these are problems that are massively complicated. These are machines that have very good physical models that describe future behavior based on past behavior. And that's good enough given the business outcome. But I'd say one of the things that's changed a lot for us is to understand how important this is, not just at the scale, not just in the details of what it means to get a right or a wrong answer. And you know, for your for your listeners to understand that you know you're always trying to optimize something when it comes to accuracy, you know, an area under a curve or some false positive rate at a fixed false negative rate. But as we start imagining, and we'll get, I think, into some of the details in this interview about some of the specific projects, you can imagine that there are new places on the on the rock curve where you don't ever want to be wrong right. or you always need to be right. And this changes the nature of how you do data science. It's, it changes the nature of how you build products around it. But I'd say the, the thing that we've learned is that that view of not everything needs machine learning to get a, get a great business outcome, but everything needs to work within the current context of not just you know an old industrial company like GE, which has been around for 125 years, but with the business processes that have been built up in some of the you know, oldest, most analog parts of, you know, of the economy, let alone not being digital, not, let alone not being you know, software savvy, trying to bring products into a place that is sort of used to doing things with the status quo because they just work is a challenge in and of itself. And all of that, in some sense, makes great sense when you understand that what we're talking about machines that affect our lives. The way one of the distinctions I make between the consumer internet of things and the industrial internet of things 
is that, you know, when your Fitbit breaks, you call up customer support and you sort of complain. But when your jet engine has a problem, that can have some serious consequences. And so the stakes are a lot higher. And because of that, you know, there's a whole regulatory environment, which is something that very few people in the consumer internet have had to deal with. Yes, you sort of have to think about PII, you have to think about HIPAA compliance and, and things like that. But now if you're talking about, you know, a regulatory oversight body with the FAA or the FDA, there is some extra boundary conditions that's put upon us as we start thinking about bringing machine learning into those, those sorts of worlds. Your team isn't really targeting, you know, or, or charted with kind of making sweeping revolutionary changes at GE, but rather, you know, you're proudly taking a much more incremental approach. You have to start somewhere. And again, taking a very practical view of what it means to transform a, an existing workflow that involves data, that involves people, that in, involves, you know, physics-based models, that involves decision rules, and then start bringing that into a machine learning-centric workflow there's a lot of different stakeholders involved. And many times people have already tried bringing machine learning in and failed for various different reasons. And so one of the sharp elbows that we wound up building up as an independent company and we, and we bring to GE now is around that notion of, you know, what are the problems that you should be solving? And in particular, should you be going after the, you know, highest value, most complex ones, or does it, should you really just start somewhere? And we really think about low-hanging fruit, and in some sense, that's our lens, is within the industrial context, where is the low-hanging fruit where it's so obvious that AI can have a measurable impact, not just on you know, things like accuracy or you know, time to make a prediction or something like that, but in real dollar terms. And the way I like to talk about it is we're not trying to solve the problems that end with a B they shouldn't end with a K. And so we're sort of in that M world where, you know, mm. at the millions of dollars a year level, if we have impact there and we can start working with the individual business units and, and their customers to start helping people understand even how to structure a new problem around AI and understand what it means to do data governance, right? What it, you know, how you wind up basically building up a, uh, an AI first product from scratch then we wound up win we wound up winning because we get to multiplex across multiple you know sort of internal and external customers one of the things that i specifically remember about this conversation we had on this point was you talked about kind of the impact of 1% in your world yeah that's 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 right i mean that really you know in some sense gets to the scale that yes you know if you have a 1% improvement you know, in a in, in a product and a workflow that is making, you know, hundreds of K a year in revenue, that's not a really big deal. But if you do have a 1% improvement, let's say in efficiency in, you know, a billion dollar product, that starts to get to be the real dollar. So in some sense, you know, what I just said before of taking the low hanging fruit and not trying to solve the really big problems, we get away with within the context of GE just because the scale at which we're talking is just so immense. To just give you a sense of it, for instance, when a um, jet engine finishes a flight, you know, call it a five-hour flight on average, there's about a terabyte of data that's generated just from that one engine. And you can imagine even the process of offloading that data 
from the airplane after it's landed and then getting it into even a data lake, that itself can be pretty complicated. But then doing you know, sort of real-time analytics on that and making some decisions from a preventative maintenance perspective is you know, one of the really important things that we have to be able to do. But now if you think about, well, there's 50,000 jet engines that are flying every day, that gives you just some sense of the enormity of the scale, right? So each, each flight is basically a, a day of Twitter data. And then you go, you know, factor of a few orders of magnitude larger than that. So for us, you know, yes, we get to work on, you know, the quote unquote low hanging fruit with fairly large dollar numbers, in part because making small incremental improvements in the workflows that involve lots of data for very expensive, important machines is just sort of the reality of where the industrial Internet is right now. Mm. So can we talk a little bit about some of the use cases that you've seen? Are there ones that you can walk us through? Yeah, so I can't go into you know, all the specific details, but you know, the, the one that I just spoke about within aviation is an important one. And there's it's something that's been discussed publicly is the need to have advanced analytics applied to data that's coming off of airplane engines to uh, achieve better outcomes. And one of the things that is important to recognize about many of these industrial use cases is there is a huge value to being able to understand ahead of time when something is going to break or whether something is in trouble. And, you know, that is where you get into some very interesting data science problems of, especially given a lot of these these objects very rarely fail, is how you build up, you know, sort of counterfactual evidence so that you can test your models offline. I mean, the easiest thing to do would be to build a machine learning model that says, take every wing, every engine off the wing after every flight. And, you know, by golly, you'd find every single problem because somebody <laughs> would, would, would take it off. But then, you know, that whole industry would come to a halt. It would probably destroy the world's economy, just given the extra latencies of what it would take to retire an, uh, an airplane every single day. Right. So that obviously doesn't make sense. So there, you know, our false negatives would be basically zero, but our false positives would be just uncomfortably high. The other approach is to say, you know, everything's working all the time. And, you know, for the most part, you'd be right. The number that I have in my head is that the sort of failure modes are only sort of, you know, a few in a million flights will there be a a significant problem with an engine, which is why we have multiple engines on on a plane. And so you're in very, very small number of statistics land, and you can't really ever know if I said, take this engine off the wing, whether it would have failed had I not said that. There may be some diagnostic evidence you could see when you actually look at it, but you can't ever gather the counterfactual of what if I didn't do this. And you can't really run A-B tests either, where you say, well, I I think you should take these off the wing, but I'm not going to say anything about that. That obviously has its own problems as well. So you're in this very interesting dance where it's lots of data, yet in some sense it's a small data problem because you only get the sort of bad or rare anomaly events every now and then. And even when you get those, you wind up having, you know, they're all sort of Anna Karenina, like they're all like, you know, unhappy families, right? They're all different in their own way. Mm. You know, that's a real challenge from a data science perspective. That's where some of the interesting innovation has to happen from an R&D perspective is to work in this, you know, kind of really long tail world. 
So that's that's kind of one family of use cases that we're interested in. Well, and you I, can actually, imagine before we kind of brought into other use cases, you know, I'm sure people are asking like, okay, how do you address that technically from a, a data science perspective? What are some of the the ways that you tackle that problem? Well, in some sense, it comes back down to, do we even tackle that specific one or do we tackle ones that are adjacent to that? Mm-hmm. And getting back to some of the work that we did in customer support, and I think is one of the really core design principles of how you think about building machine learning products, that is building assistive tools that wind up not sort of making a decision by themselves, but actually provide information and insights to analysts who are looking at the data. And there are analysts who are looking at the results of data coming off of all these engines. So instead of saying, yes, this is going to fail and take it off, or no, it's not, there's an adjacent problem where you could wind up saying, you know, I'll create a rank prioritized list of the engines that I think an analyst might want to look at. And then you let the domain experts in that world then go through the path and make some decisions on that. So it becomes kind of an accelerant and kind of an efficiency play rather than a, you know, a black or white kind of, you know, almost draconian type of thing. So we're not anywhere near the point where machines are going to wind up generating, you know, work orders without any people in the loop. So when you wind up pulling it back a little bit from the this is going to fail and this is okay to I think this is something somebody might want to look at. It turns out that analysts look at lots of things, right? And so they're often digging in to a specific engine to understand, you know, what's happening with it. And so we have a lot of that data from from the past. Now it's not a very long tail problem. We make it sort of more evenly balanced of, you know, X percent look like they're fine just from the very high level overview, you know, one minus X percent looks like they need to get some more more work done or, or somebody needs to dig into the data a little bit more. And as long as X, you know, is close to 0.5 or even if it's 0.1, you're in pretty good shape because then you can apply sort of classic supervised machine learning problems to that. So that that's sort of one trick that we have is to take something out of the, you know, very sort of rare regime and try to bring it back into a world where it still has value. You could still measure that value but it becomes kind of an empowerment tool rather than something that's making absolute decisions. That's kind of one thing that we've, we've brought from our, our past lives into, the, into this one. I guess the other one is, you know, the, the nature of the data is very different. You've got data coming from lots of different subsystems, tends to be time series data. In the past, we had worked a lot with natural language processing. And, you know, one of the things that's very powerful with this sort of data is that if you have a lot of it, there are techniques one can do, let's say within the deep learning world, where you can, in a very unsupervised way, you know, build up some capability of generating features out of that and then do anomaly detection off of those features or just do direct classification off of those features. And so you get to leverage lots of the, you know, quote unquote, normal data and normal behavior and then use that to be able to make inference on the things that look like they're out of band. So, you know, for us, being able to apply some of the, you know, cutting edge techniques in, let's say, recurrent neural nets and unsupervised learning around these time series data sets is very interesting. And I guess the third part of that, which is coupled to the other two, is trying to do this all at scale and trying to do this all in as real time as needed 
for the specific problem. And we've really crossed over in terms of our back end in, in terms of what's needed from sort of large single machines in a multi-core environment to you know, a multi-node type of environment. So doing deep learning across multiple GPU instances is something that our infrastructure that we had built before has got to adapt to. What I heard was you talked about using deep learning to to generate features that would allow you to train more traditional supervised models. And that actually that reminds me of there's a so you may not be aware of this, but we're starting a paper reading group associated with the podcast and the first version of this meetup is going to be on the 16th of August. And the paper that we're going to go through is one of the papers from CVPR where a team at Apple basically used a a generative adversarial network to generate data to then train a supervised model to, I think, supervise or Actually, I'm not clear on this because I haven't read the paper yet, but I will by the, <laughs> by the 16th. But the, the point that I wanted to pick out is I've heard this notion a couple of times around using deep neural networks to generate training data for you know either supervised or more traditional models a few times. And I wanted to, A, make sure that that's what I heard you say you were doing and also kind of get some feedback from you on how broadly applicable are you seeing that across the various use cases you're looking at? Are you doing a lot of that? Okay. So to be clear, we're not using GANs to generate training data. There's another approach that's, it's called autoencoders that allow you to generate features in an unsupervised sense. So it's adjacent, but it's it's quite a different problem. What I will say though, in general about GANs, and there's only, you know, kind of a few papers out on this in this context, is that it's actually kind of interesting if you think about the data privacy and the sensitivity around some of the data that we have access to at at GE, you know, passing data around, and clearly it needs to be done in a, a, you know, highly governed, highly regulatory, you know, approved way, isn't, isn't always the best thing. And especially when it's, when it's very large. So you can imagine that there are use cases where different groups within, you know, within the same company may need to get access to data, but instead of sending the data itself over, you can imagine building a GAN that's able to generate data that's like the original data. So if you have very sensitive data that you don't want moving outside of your walled garden or your data mm-hmm. lake, you can imagine building a GAN that essentially simulates that. And instead of handing somebody, you know, the keys to the original data, you could hand them, you know, keys to the GAN, which, you know, if for whatever reason fell into, you know, into hands that weren't supposed to see it, you know, could provably not be able to reproduce the original data. Yet, folks who got access to this GAN would, in principle, be able to build, you know, machine learning models against that. Um, And so I think it's a very interesting and clever way to start thinking about passing, you know, information about a set of data around without actually having to pass that data around. And so being able to build models that learn from, 
you know, different groups and their data without those groups having to share data amongst mm -hmm. each other or without having to aggregate it all into one physical place is of great interest to us. And it's not just sort of an interesting thing to do. In many cases, it's a necessity. If we want to build great models and we can't, you know, even see the data or we can't federate it into a single data lake, we have to have you know, really clear paths to being able to do that. And again, there's academic literature on this, but there's not a whole lot of work that's being done on this in practice. Hmm. That's kind of one interesting regime. So you bringing this up is, I think, an important one. And the other one that we touched on before at the top was around sort of the marriage of, of physics-based and data-driven models. Mm -hmm. You know, unlike, again, in the consumer internet, where, you know, you build a data-driven model around customer behavior or around, you know, actions around sentiment, et cetera. You can try to build some sort of latent understanding about how the brain works, et cetera. But those are very complex, you know, biological systems effectively that are giving rise to the data that you wind up trying to opine on. There is no physics behind, you know, recommendation engines. There's no sort of core principles there. Yet in the industrial world, you've got gen engines, you've got MRI machines, you've got wind turbines, nuclear power plants, and these are all built up by physical objects that if you knew all the physics of them, then you wouldn't need any data because you'd be able to predict exactly what's going to happen in the future. So from, again, a preventative right. maintenance perspective, you'd be just fine. But as we all know, even in very simple physical systems, we often don't know all the physics. And right. so while GE has, I think, some of the world's experts in all the very various different subdomains in material science, et cetera, building up complex physics models, you know, I think of it as physics models only getting us, you know, 90% of the way there to a great answer. And then adding a, a sort of data-driven, you know, layer on top of that is, is the path that we're, that we're seeking. So rather than what we did in the past, where you just take, you know, effectively a fully data-driven model to get your outcomes, we're quite interested in understanding, you know, how in a you know, rigorous way do we combine the outputs of physical models essentially as the inputs to data-driven ones, in addition to all the sensor data that you're getting. So I'd say that's a really critical distinction, and it's also a huge amount of white space that, that we see in the industrial machine learning world. And that's something that GE's been pursuing or evangelizing for a while through this notion of digital twin. Can you talk a little bit about that and the role that it plays in the work you're doing around ML and AI? Yeah, so digital twin, for those that haven't heard the term, is a an idea and an implementation of an idea that every physical object should have a virtual version of it that you know could live in the cloud or if it's very sensitive can live in an on-premise environment and that digital version should be kept up to date with the physical version of it and it should know about its maintenance history it should know in the context of you know an, an asset model it should know you know if this is a part in a large machine you know it should know about the machine itself so in, at the very base layer, I think of a digital twin as a digital representation of a physical asset and all the data that's available about it, both historically and then in real time. Where AI and advanced analytics comes in on top of that is to say, well, given all of this data, you know, can I make a predictive statement about what's going to happen to the physical object by interrogating the digital version of that? So rather than having to 
you know, ping a, a hard drive, which is, you know, on the device itself and try to pull out data. We need strategies that take data from the from those edge devices, bring them into the cloud. And then it allows me, you know, in a more relaxed cloud environment to be able to ask questions of that and maybe make some, you know, maybe take some actions based on it. And then, then the next step after that, of course, is to take the results of some of those predictions and push them back into the physical device itself and potentially even update things like, you know, configuration variables based on predicted outcomes. You know, I don't think we're really there yet across a, a wide swath of, of GE assets, but that, in my, my sense, is where a huge amount of value winds up coming in if you're able to build, you know, machine learning models now, not just against this one twin, but against, you know, all the twins in the same asset class and use those, you know, models, not just on one customer's data, but across all customers' data to be able to, you know, get better outcomes. Mm. And so this is somewhat related to the role of simulation in building ML and AI systems for industrial applications in general, right? We've talked previously in the conversation about how you, you can't just take the engine off and, you know, put it through its paces to generate data sets. You know, what have you learned about the process of, of using simulation as a way to create these models? Yeah. So to be honest, I haven't learned that much. It doesn't mean I can't pontificate on it, <laughs> but <laughs> I can't say that I've learned a tremendous amount just because those aren't the sorts of problems that we've been directly are exposing ourselves to. Clearly, there's a you know kind of reinforcement learning play in, in that conversation about being able to simulate the environment or the results of an action that you wind up taking and being able to, you know, build models offline before you wind up deploying it into, into the field. We haven't ourselves been working on in sort of that kind of robotics angle, but that's obviously really important. That said, you know, simulations get back to that the physics-based model that I was describing earlier. And I, in some sense, I think of physics-based models as essentially simulations. Mm -hmm. So you've got, you know, a simulation of your physical object because you think you understand most of the physics based on the whole history of what's happened to that object. If you've done your, you know, quote-unquote simulation right, you should have some, you know, bands, you know, uncertainty bands into what state is happening next. And then again, could you build a you know, machine learning model that's effectively taking the results of that simulation and then using that as your, you know, more or less your physics plus data-driven model? Yes, we've got, you know, I think a sort of simpler notion of how you do that, which is just take the base predictions out from the physics-based model and use that as inputs in addition to all the sensor data you know, to, to build a machine learning model off of that. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? So, yeah, let's let me let, we can take an example. You know, let's say that you've got a wind turbine and you've got a prediction of what the wind is going to be in an hour from now. Mm -hmm. And let's say that there are configuration variables that one might want to set effectively in real time based on, you know, essentially with it, with the optimization goal of maximizing the the energy output. So, you know, you think about it as as rotating around to try to get the optimal wind direction. So now based on, you know, some data that's coming in and predictions about the future, based on what we know about the physics of the object that's going to be spinning and how long it takes for us to spin, you can imagine, you know, given a set of inputs, 
like what the weather is going to be and what the weather was an hour ago and how fast the turbine's spinning now, you could run it through effectively a physics simulation that says, you know, if I turn it this amount, I'm expecting to get this, this energy yield out. If I turn it by this amount, I'm expecting to get this energy yield out. What I would posit is that one can take the results of those predictions, you know, think about it in very simply as, you know, an efficiency curve as a function of, you know, azimuthal angle of the rotation of the blade, mm-hmm. you know, th- there's going to be a place where that's optimized. And right. clearly that number is going to be wrong because there'll be other physics of that object. Let's say that object's got a little kink in it or it's at a slight tilt or the, the models of the, of the wind are always systematically off by, you know, five degrees in the orientation. Mm-hmm. What I would then do is say, well, in the past, we've had all these turbines, you know, choosing a, a next best action for itself, and those haven't been necessarily optimal. How could we take all of the data that we have coming in and build a model off of that to try to get a, a more optimal answer? And of course, what you would do in some sense, because you have multiple turbines in the field, is try different potential outputs based on what's actually what you know what what the model actually predicts and then as you get the results back you say well that looks pretty good that's how you're effectively building up a continually learning model you could call it a reinforced model that you could then deploy and get better and better over time so you would use again the predictions from you know the non-machine learning part of your model and use that as an input to the machine learning model That's a pretty fascinating take at reinforcement learning, right? We think about reinforcement learning as you've got these physical systems, perhaps that may be, you know, maybe super simplistic, like an Atari game, or maybe, you know, a simulation of a robotic system that has, you know, some degree of fidelity to real life. And you're using the simulation environment as a way to give you feedback on, you know, what, you know, what happens in real life. And so the model is kind of acting in this simulation environment. And what you're describing is kind of flipping that on its head and making, you know, real life, your wind turbine farm, your simulation environment in a, in a sense, I guess not in the sense of simulation, but in a sense of the environment in which your models take, you know, controlled deliberate actions to try to minimize, you know, minimize the error, maximize efficiency. Yeah, and to be clear, I don't I don't think that's a, a unique view that I have. You know, one of uh, I'd say the highest value results as I've seen come out of Google's DeepMind is an optimization on you know HVAC usage in large you know compute environments. And there, you know, you can imagine you've got 17 different levers to push up and down, and you know there is no a priori understanding other than the physics, you know, thermodynamic physics of how our, how our room responds to HVAC, other than to say that you've got a whole bunch of data coming in, like essentially call it what's the server load on every single object and where is it located in my data center. And all I can do is move, you know, these 17 levers up and down. You know, that's something that your simulated environment is actually the real environment and getting to turn those levers up and down is something that you wind up learning how to do over time because you've got a very clear optimization metric, which is, you know, how do I 
decrease my energy costs of pumping AC into this into this room while still maintaining a level of reliability on the on the machines to not go over their you know expected heat loads. So you know I think that's a very clear example in an industrial context in some sense where that sort of notion of reinforcement learning winds up playing out. To be clear, though, I would say that reinforcement learning, as, as you've described, as I was describing in the industrial context, is really kind of one end of the spectrum of, you know, what we'll call continual learning. And, you know, the sort of other end of the spectrum is you build a model on static data, you deploy it into production, and you grab feedback of whether you're right or wrong. And then, you know, a year later, you build another model based on that feedback and you deploy it. That's sort of a very sort of gradual, continual learning, almost right. punctuated. And then step farther forward into that sort of what we were doing in WISE when we were doing customer support, where you wind up having a model that's rebuilt every day because the world of customer support is changing fairly rapidly and those are deployed. And it's taken all the feedback of what you just learned over the last day. And then you can imagine another one where you know it's sort of a cyber security environment where you want to have a model which is updating in itself based on different threats that are coming in that could be an update on a on a, on a minute time scale the kind of continual true continuous like real time learning where you have these online models that are just getting better and better over time and adapting to a changing environment is you know a very natural place to be and so I see that all as part of a continuum. Now, it has vast implications about the engineering behind it and even the data science and the certain techniques you would use. But conceptually, I think it's um, all sort of very similar. I think the distinction that I thought I heard there, and we can go back to the DeepMind HVAC example in the context of this continuous learning spectrum that you outlined is, you know, they're, you know, clearly they're, they're modeling a physical system. They're deploying models out to a physical system. They are, you know, continually optimizing the, you know, this model and, you know, getting to a, a system that has, you know, getting to a model that can control their 17 levers in a way that, you know, produces optimal output or at least way better <laughs> to use a technical term output over a given period of time. What I thought I heard you describing in the wind turbine example was if we kind of map that to this continual learning spectrum and say that, you know, their time scale is, you know, their feedback loop is operating at such a scale that it's, you know, near continual. What I thought I heard you describing was almost like accelerated continual learning, meaning we take this model and then, you know, we'd push it out to the physical devices, again, in this case, the wind turbines, and direct them to act in specific ways, you know, not to pursue the the plan that is outlined in this model, but to, you know, deviate from that in a way that we think will accelerate learning and thus produce a better model more quickly. Did, did I make all that up or, did, or were you saying something like that? No, I think, I think you've got it. And the missing piece of why I see that connected to the HVAC example is that in principle, and I don't know this to be true or not, you also have a thermodynamic model of what, what would happen hmm. if you, you know, threw lever four up higher and increase the, you know, the, the HVAC in that region of the room. You in principle could model that. And you can imagine that instead of just using 
the data coming off of the individual computers as the input. Instead, you could also use that data plus a thermodynamic prediction about what would happen if you made a change. And I agree, this could actually be an accelerant because in a world, again, where you know all the physics, you wouldn't need a domain-driven model, you would just, or data-driven model, you would just take all the heat loads and you just crunch some you know, big supercomputer, which itself could add to heat load in the room. <laughs> but then you'd wind up being able to say very precisely, if I change all the levers in every single possible combination, what is the optimal output? But that's obviously a very hard, almost intractable problem, given the complexity of, of, of even, of even a, a data server room. So I connect those two examples mm-hmm. in part because they're physical systems. And in both cases, you have the potential, whether you use it or not, of using you know, a, a, you know, true thermodynamics and physical modeling of what the expected output should be. And instead of you know, having to explore that space in a purely data-driven way, you then have the ability to explore it in a sort of simulated way and at least do an exploration in your in the physical in the real world around where you think the good answer is going to wind up being. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've learned or any direction that you can point us in terms of the, you know, the very practical tactical approaches to integrating the you know the physics into the modeling process and the models themselves? Yeah, I mean, you know, in a time series sense, you know, if you've got a physical system that is, you know, behaving effectively like a sine wave, I mean, there's a, you know, call it a uh, linear oscillator that's involved in producing the data, you can imagine, you know, fitting with your physical model. So this is if you have it parameterized, the data that you have to your physical model and getting out of, you know, a series of internal parameters that you know more or less gives you a good measurement of the past and can then you can then use to make a prediction about the future. So again, if it's a sinusoidal model, you'd fit you know the spring constant and the mass mm-hmm. of the object just to make it really simple. And then you'd get, you know, in the if it's a perfect model and it perfectly describes the problem, you'd get basically just a, resi- a set of residuals from your fit that's consistent with the noise properties of the data. But oftentimes in more complex systems, you might have some residuals that are, you know, correlated in time and and not zero and not consistent with the errors, which means that there's more things going on that you know. So instead of building a machine learning model on this, you know, large sinusoidal wave, why not just build a machine learning model on the residuals of the data? And there you could then bring in other data points. You could bring in metadata. It becomes very powerful in some sense, remove away the, you know, the signal that you know about and only model the signal that, you, you know, is unmodeled. So, you know, if I've only got a certain number of data points and I've only got a finite sized model, if I don't imbue any physical understanding of this into this, in, into what I've got, you know, I've basically now have to fit a sinusoid using my machine learning model. They, they can do that, of course. But then you're, you're using your, your power up in something that's knowable from other, by other means. But imagine you measured that, right? And you said, well, I know it's a mass in the spring, and I, I get these measurements, but boy, you know, I can't predict the next time step. Why is that? So you, you know, do what I just said. You subtract off essentially your physical model. 
And then what you wind up realizing is the residuals are growing in time. It's because you forgot to include friction. Well, now your domain-driven model is going to basically learn what the you know, friction constant is so that it winds up getting a better prediction when you combine both of those two together. And it may have had a harder time finding that if you just said, I don't know anything about this system. Let's just use pure data to figure it out. So I think the, the whole point here is that these are physical systems that have the potential to be modeled. And yet the, our modeling capability on the physics side is, is imperfect because we don't know all the physics. Yet that's clearly in some sense prior information that we should be using. And then, you know, removing that out of the original signal and then only trying to predict what those residuals are so that we get a better answer. You know, when you talk to, or when I've talked to, I'll try to be more precise here, some of the folks from the deep learning perspective, you know, they kind of say to probably poorly paraphrase them in a way that they disagree with, forget about all the physical model stuff. Like what's cool about this deep learning stuff is that it'll figure everything out, right? So why worry about trying to, incorporate these models, you know, let's just throw tons and tons and tons of data at this thing. And, you know, the network will figure it out. And that's always been counterintuitive to me. And so, you know, I just wanted to kind of poke you at this a little bit to, to make sure we're really clear and, and, you know, us as a, a community are really clear on why, at least in this domain, that the physical models are important and can be very powerful. Well, look, so to put, to put ourselves in the minds of the people that made those sorts of statements, there's great evidence that they're correct. <laughs> you have a whole history, decades long, of computer vision where you know, people are trying to come up with essentially physical models of you know, what it is that a machine is seeing and building you know, a very deep understanding based on our understanding of physics of, of vision into being able to make predictions, being able to do segmentation, being able to make classifications. And then, you know, deep learning matures, the large, large data sets, benchmark data sets wind up coming out. And all of a sudden, all the old models and all the old ways just fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So there's an example in the computer vision world. There's Same examples of natural this. language processing. It, it, yeah, I was going to say in the NLP world, you know, famous NLP person, I think from the 70s, you know, mm -hmm. said every time I fire a linguist, my model improves. Right. This crazy notion now that, yeah, why do I need to have a, you know, complex understanding of how language works when in the end, all I really need to be able to do is just throw massive amounts of data at a network that's capable of learning it. So there's certainly examples where, you know, physical modeling or, you know, theoretical, you know, theoretically hierarchical models of how language works just basically, you know, were inferior once you had enough data and you right. had, a, you know, sophisticated enough networks. But the operative word that you said or phrase is tons of data. <laughs> and, that and that's problem is, relative. That's problem. Rel exactly. That's problem relative. Again, let's come back to the jet engine example. Yeah, we've got tons of data. We have more data in the, in the in jet engine world in principle than, you know, exists in, in, you know, any data lake of any, you know, computer vision researcher. So that, that you would say, well, we've got more data, so we can just throw it at and throw at it. Except in this case, as I was saying before, we have so little examples of things going wrong because these engines are so good and so robust that you have to appeal to physics. In some sense, 
you have to look at a physical understanding of these objects and the different failure modes because, you know, in, in computer simulation land or in just physical simulation land more broadly, you can test a whole bunch of different things that never get tested or seen in the real world. And so you can build up a whole, you know, a whole bunch of failure mode environments that, you know, if you start seeing something like that happen in real data, that becomes a trigger point and you say, look, we've got a problem that's upcoming, let's, let's take care of it. Whereas a, a purely data-driven model, my hunch is at best it could say, this is something we haven't seen before, but it can't tell you what's gonna happen in the end because you don't have a predictive model. It's literally never happened before in any of the data you've ever collected. Yeah. Yet it is something that you could fit you know, a physical model to and show, well, given all the data of what's happened in the last you know, 10 days, this outcome is, is now expected. And again, you won't be exactly right on those, but I would argue that in those, those are great examples where physics-based models are going to wind up trumping you know, purely data-driven models. And in the end, I think it's going to become clear that it's going to be the combination of, of both of those notions that will make the most powerful, most robust outcomes. Mm. Great. Well, this has been a, an awesome follow-up discussion, and I'm super excited to have you as our first repeat guest back on the podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave the, our listeners with? Well, first of all, I'd love to be the first three-peat guest as well, <laughs> so we can look forward to that in the future. And maybe somebody has a model for when that may, may happen. But yeah, what I will say is it is a very interesting time to be crossing over from the consumer internet working on, you know, valued problems for, you know, people and their interactions. I think we're working on at GE Digital, you know, high value problems for people living their lives, right? Mm -hmm. You get on airplanes, your house is powered by a power plant somewhere, et cetera. You go to a doctor and, and generally GE machines are the things taking pictures of you and your insides. So your life as a person depends upon the, the industrial Internet of Things. And, you know, it's a great time to be part of that. And there's a massive amount of work to be done. Does that mean you're hiring? Oh, yes, we are hiring. <laughs> Please, I would love to have any of your readers contact me directly. Email's easy. It's just josh.bloom at ge.com. Or you can tweet at me. I'm just prof, P-R-O-F-J-S-B. And love to, love to hear from you. I think the important other thing is it's not just, you know, are you a machine learning expert in this one little, you know, realm of time series, multispectral time series for blah, blah, blah. It's we're really looking for people that, you know, just know how to scale computation and work with data under very, you know, restricted environments around security and governance. Mm. So for me, it's it's exciting, not just, you know, thinking about it from the ML perspective, but from the engineering perspective. Mm. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Josh. It was great to great to catch up. Great to catch up with you as well. Thanks so much for having me on and love the series and love what you've been doing. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For the notes for this episode, to ask any questions or to let us know how you like the show, leave a comment on the show notes page at twimlai.com slash talk slash 42. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bonsai and Wise.io at GE Digital. For more information about Bonsai, 
visit bonds.ai slash twimmelai. And for more on WISE, visit WISE.io. Don't forget to register for our upcoming online meetup at twimmelai.com slash meetup and my newsletter at twimmelai.com slash newsletter. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.